Hey everybody, welcome to Bob Suds and Banthas, a podcast about Disneyland, Star Wars, and all the other things the Disney company owns that we love. On this very special episode, we get the opportunity to sit down with an incredible Disney legend, Bob Gurr, the creator of the monorail, the people mover, the submarines, the Matterhorn, and so many other amazing attractions that guests get to experience every single day. We hope you enjoy the interview, and please stick around afterwards to hear our thoughts on being able to sit down with this amazing individual. I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a amusement enterprise built where that the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. You take Disneyland down there, we operate 15 hours a day, and these shows have got to go on, go on on the hour. Now, the Tiki Bird Show goes on three times an hour. And I don't have to stop for coffee breaks and all that kind of stuff, you see? So that's the whole idea of it. It's just another dimension in the animation that we've been doing all our life. It's now we're going into dimensional things and everything. It's a new door, it's a new toy for us, and we're having a lot of fun, and uh, we hope we can really do some exciting things in the future. started with many ideas, threw them away, started all over again. And eventually it evolved into what you see today as Disneyland. But it all started from a daddy with two daughters wondering where he could take them, where he could have a little fun with them too. <laughs> Our guest today is a man whose work you felt every time you visited a Disney park. His list of accomplishments throughout his career are staggering. From the submarines to the Skyway, from Abraham Lincoln to Autopia, from the monorail to the Matterhorn, if you've ridden in it, he's likely designed it. He's a man whose limitless mind is second only to his boundless energy, and he's the architect of our nostalgia for tomorrow. We are thrilled to welcome to our show, Disney legend, Bob Gurr. Bob, thank you so much for coming to Bob Sleds and Banthas. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, there is so much that we are excited to talk with you about. Um, but I think the first thing we want to start with is I want to know what is 10-year-old Bob Gurr like? Take us back to growing up in Los Angeles and what it was like for you as a kid. Well, even before 10 years old, five years old, our family lived in uh, the Los Feliz district about two blocks down from uh, where Walt Disney was living. I didn't know that till later. But luckily, we moved to Glendale, not very far from uh, the future Imagineering uh, creative campus next to an airport, and by five years old, I was in love with airplanes and cars. Did you have a so, view of, of the runway? Uh, no, on the downwind lake, actually, uh, which is adjacent to the airport, which meant uh, the airplanes and circling to land at the airport came over our house. Oh, I didn't even have to wait for 10, 10 years old to be excited about something. It started at five. And and what, and what at that at that moment, did your mind start did, did your mind start clicking away about how do these things stay in the air? What what do I do to, to be flying one of those one of these days? I mean, what what is happening there at five years old? Oh, no, all that started at that, that kind of question started at 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I was very aware of mechanical things. Sometimes they were completely terrifying, which made me more interesting to approach them again. 
to find out they they weren't going to kill you, but they were so interesting. Uh, th- those were very important. Certainly by the age of two to two and a half, uh, I, I think I had a pretty good read on everything. And I remember my um, mother would tell me in later years, she says, you know, your father was so disappointed. Parents always wait to see, is it mama or dada? The first word was airplane. Oh, that's <laughs> could, beautiful. It's wonderful. I could, I could point. I saw it. <laughs> Bob, I wanted to ask you real quick. I'm going to nerd out on the airport with you in just a second. But before we get to that, uh, I wanted to clarify. You, you were born uh, or lived when you were very young in the Los Feliz area. And that was near Walt's house where he had the two, the Walt and Roy house that are sort of mere images of each other. Um, oh, no. No, not, no, not that one. The one with the oh, porch. Oh, oh, that that was the first. The first homes. Uh, as soon as Walt got a little bit of money, he bought a beautiful lot on a curved street called Woking Way. Okay. Uh, curved street and uh, designed a beautiful home, and he got that thing built so fast. I think in thirty-two, something like that. Okay. Matter of, of just a couple of months, but of course he had the contractor, but he also had access to all his studio, uh, the millwrights. Uh, everybody came down to help Walt with that house. Uh, and it, it still stands today. Ernie's thrown parties there. I've been to parties on that okay. Wow, fantastic. <laughs> uh, but unbeknownst to me, my, my grandmother, um, um, she had uh, outlived two husbands, married well, and had a big home uh, two blocks uh, down from Woking Way. We were on mm. uh, uh, Richland and Cromwell on a, on a corner, really prestigious place. So my early years, um, once I could see that, oh, I am a sentient being. Oh, look at all this stuff <laughs> going on here. It was in uh, some very, very nice uh, surroundings with a, yeah. uh, with a very, very nice doting grandmother. So, yeah, I saw a very good side of life immediately. Yeah. But then, of course, it graduated into the technical stuff, airplanes, yeah. cars, military, World War II, and we're up to about 11 years old. Yeah. Super quickly. I, I, my, my timelines get a little bit skewed there, but any memory of the Snow White studio before that was turned into like a grocery store or something, I believe? Do you have memories of that? No. The only thing I recall uh, contemporary, contemporaneously in that time frame, um, since uh, we lived in the uh, home at Richland and Cromwell, and my father had a little store in um, Glendale, when you drive down the street to Glendale, I always sat on the right side of the car because there was a funny-looking building, and I always wanted to see it. It turned out that was the Tamashander. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I didn't realize what the significance of that till obviously, many, many years later. Right. But that was my first hint that, oh, golly, the world really has interesting stuff. So – uh, Bob, during that time, I mean, you're, you're obviously enraptured by cars and airplanes and, and the movement that they have, the look that they have. Were, would you consider yourself at that time to be, were you a tinkerer? Were you an artist? Were you a little bit of both? Like, because you, cause you eventually go off to school for industrial design. So I, I'm, I'm curious to know what led the way. Was it the artistic aspect of it or was it the the uh, the tinker aspect of it. Uh, it wasn't uh, tinker uh, at the start. See, when you're growing up and everything's exciting, you have no idea why you do stuff. It's only later in life you look back and say, "Oh, that's what it was." Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. um, I would have to say that um, early on, by at least five, six, or seven, um, I would have a uh, 
Crayolas, and I would draw on anything. And it turned out that our home had a, my bedroom had a white plaster wall, and I just drew airplanes on the wall. And one day my mother saw me do that, which had obviously ruined, uh, ruined the wall. I was provided with paper, uh, <laughs> all the paper and Crayolas I wanted. So I believe the, the first hint was I wanted to not draw what is. I wanted to draw what might be. Yeah. I never yeah. saw doing stuff over. I saw doing stuff that doesn't exist. Uh, we're going to start talking about Disneyland here in a minute. And as a segue into that, I, I, I wanted to ask you a joke question. And the joke question is, Bob, what's your process? Because, because I hear you don't like the question, what's your process? So tell me a little bit about why, why you don't like that question or what your thoughts are on that question, and then we'll start talking about how you get to Disney. And, and also, what's your process on reaching the conclusion that you don't like the question, what's your process? Yeah. No, it's, uh, I'm glad you did that up front. That's a, it's a very serious thought. Yeah. And I'll, I'll explain it this way. Uh, in today's educated world, uh, everybody is very aware of uh, what we could say is rigid curriculum at all levels. That curriculum consists of mostly by rote uh, series of assignments over maybe four years. It's extremely procedural. You don't go to B unless you've got A figured out with the idea that your parents have paid a lot of money to this college. And by the time you, you leave there on the end of the fourth year and the $28,000 has been invested, you assume since you went from A to Z, automatically you can now do anything because you have been trained by rote. Yeah. I see so many people coming out of schools wind up with a, like USC, uh, a licensed engineer who can't draft. They can't draw. Uh, completely uh, absurd. They, they stumble a lot because they wonder, well, I'm supposed to have my process, don't I? And since I'm taught to go from A to Z, my process should yield a result, doesn't it? Well, how come I can't? And we're all in the same boat because we have coordinators who write everything down and they take it to the project managers who then take it to the finance managers who take it to the budget and scheduling department and they get in a big fight. Oh, well, it costs too much and you're late, so you better do something. You, you see what happens? Yeah. That's process. Okay. Yeah. Process also assumes that whatever you're going to do in life or whatever venture is going to be able to run by the specified process. Let's turn it around and go the other way. Let's say you're Walt Disney and you're a cartoonist and you like movies after World War II because they're cheaper to build and you got to make a living somehow. And you got this bug in your bonnet that you want to build an amusement park of all things. I mean, that is just... That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. But he gets a bunch of people to agree to it, and we all start in. We never went to school called Amusement Park Design 101. There yeah. was no such yeah. thing. Yeah. Do you see the freedom we saw every day? You start in at something, knowing whatever you know about it, and every day you learn a little bit more about it. You talk to everybody around you. And you begin to see how things are going to work, what you got to do, big job, small job, whatever kind of job. And partway through, you get it figured out about, uh, say, doing it this way works pretty good. Doing it that way works pretty good. Okay, well, we find out some stuff that doesn't work. Okay, we'll make a note of that. Then when you get down to, they had a good opening. The attraction works. Uh, it ran mostly. 
and everybody's happy, and the newspaper reporters write about it really good. And then somebody says, what's your process? Uh, they didn't then, but they, they do now. You turn around and look back and say, oh, the process is the byproduct of the work. This means you have the flexibility. If somebody asks you to do something, you've never done it before, and the fact that you've never been trained in a process, you your mind is wide open. You can go in any direction, any speed you want with what you know, and then you're going to learn more every day. And you gradually achieve the thing, the objective, without the idea of a way to do it. But you found a way by slow evolution, which was not necessary, but you found your way by just doing it anyway. I have, I have a question about that. Do, do you think that the reason why you were given that type of freedom and ability to collaborate and experiment and fail and be and be allowed to fail. Do you think that those reasons were because Walt's vision for Disneyland was not driven by the revenue he can make from Disneyland, but by the product of Disneyland itself? Do you think that's the reason why, or do you? Is, is there or was revenue potential revenue generation part of that? I'm I'm laughing. The thought of revenue. Um, the thought of product never occurred. The driving thing was, oh, my God, this is going to be terrific. I hope this works. I'd love to go there. <laughs> so you, you had this uh, constant excitement every day because, yeah, we're, we're going to open this thing. Uh, it would be better than all the other amusement parks. I'd certainly go to it. And every day you're just discovering more stuff about it, but you're, you're – you're responding to the excitement of it. I don't ever recall anything about that it's going to make money or anything like that. Because, you know, movie business is, is risky. Right. And it wasn't until maybe uh, six months into uh, after the park had opened, Walt would gather up a couple of guys to kick around some, you know, what do we do next? And I remember the ideas were flowing faster than, than you could sketch. And then he kind of pulled back from the table a little bit, and then he said, uh, well, boys, you know, these little bastards going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, it startled me, but I could see that, oh, this will have better revenue in 56, uh, but it's all based on somebody's going to like it. I want I want to get into some Disneyland stuff, some great stories there, but but and I don't want to get this wrong, but it seems like a lot of people – you know, they want to work at Disney. They want to, they want to work there. And so they pursue Disney and they're like, how can I get them to call me and whatever? seems like your story to Disney was actually a little bit different. seems like they almost, you just found yourself in areas and educational institutions and places where they actually were calling for you because your skill had already been noticed in these different design classes. And I probably got that wrong, but take us through how you actually end up there. Okay. Uh, that's a, that's a good assumption, but, uh, that's not the way history uh, happened. Came out of art center school uh, the second uh, half of uh, the four, four years, was, uh, General Motors paid my scholarship the first years with my grandmother. Three weeks before graduation, uh, General Motors hired me to, to make sure nobody else got me, and I was told to pack tomorrow and drive to Detroit, uh, which I did, and uh, got to Detroit, and I was there a year and a day uh, due to some very lengthy stories. Um, I turned around and came back. And coming back here, I just was kind of a 20-something uh, a bum, went to the beach in the afternoons, 
Uh, I had a car job for Kaiser Willys, who a consultant in Detroit, and I would work two hours every day on that. I uh, was doing books for a publisher, uh, just, you know, whatever I like to do. And then I did a fill-in job for an industrial designer for about two weeks. And during the course of that, I got a phone call to go down to Art Center to meet a dear friend of mine from Detroit. I went down there and just in the course of walking down a hallway, I meet a person who is, has to do with the college. And he says, oh, Bob, do you ever do outside work? Well, I don't, but I said yes. Next day, I get a phone call saying, uh, Bob, uh, go to the Disney studio and get there about 20 minutes and meet a Mr. Irvine. He'll be at the gate. Oh, <laughs> okay. So uh, having no idea of anything other than the fact that I had seen a picture in the LA Times of an amusement park, and I had thought, oh, boy, I hope they build that one. I'd love to go for that one. And at the same time, I was friends with Ub Iwerks and, uh, and because I knew they're his both boys. Uh, Were you up by works paper boy? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. So amazing. Yeah, they were on my paperwork right. uh, during yeah, World War II. But Bob was a neat guy. He didn't he didn't talk a lot, but he uh, always had interesting cars. He'd give me a ride, whatever he had that was interesting. So, you know, cars. Yeah. And uh, w- uh, I was in the same car club, uh, the Road Burners, with his uh, younger son, Dave. Dave and I were car guys. But Bob never said what he did. I just knew he was a, something at Disney. Not until I arrive at Disney and then I find out what Up does and who he was. I said, Up, you never told me you and Walt started this thing. <laughs> Wait, amazing. so you're the co-creator of Mickey Mouse? He never mentioned that? Just yeah. slipped his and mind. Your, and your son, Dave and I, we go we go grabbing hunting, we go deep sea fishing. He never said what you did. <laughs> it was like, oh. So that was, that was um, if you have to say, a career path that was ordinary and specific. Well, I never had one. Sure. It was just bang, phone call, go. So bang, you so go. you come into into Disney and your first job is is developing what the chassis look like for the Autopia. No, the body. Oh, the body. I'm sorry, that's right. The the body for Autopia. And and at that point, you still had not met Walt yet. And you 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 have this great story of 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 meeting Walt without realizing you're meeting Walt. I would bring in a drawing on the following Saturday. And then the Saturday after that, I came back with more drawings. I went out to the little chassis that a guy had built. Didn't have a body and it was kind of rudimentary. And, and, you know, guys stand around, they put their foot on a tire and you put your elbow on your knee and then you, you kibitz. Uh, we had a spare wheel available and it's got older guy walks up, puts his foot there and, chats for a little bit. Uh, the part I recall about him, he was kind of ratty looking and unshaven. And I took him as being uh, one of the fathers of one of the night guards or something. <laughs> and then when he walked off, he, everybody said, see you, Walt. And I just thought, that's Walt, isn't he? <laughs> I don't know what he looked like. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. The next Saturday, i uh, back there again. Uh, and this was before they'd hired me. I got hired right after that. Walt starts asking me questions about the books I publish. And it, it startled me. I don't know the man. We have not been formally introduced. How does he know the things I've done in my past? And especially the details about a car book and the type of car book. And it kind of puzzled me, but over a couple of weeks, I figured out, oh, there's car guys on the lot. One was Ben Silverstein. Um, 
He's a car nut, antique cars. I know Ward Kimball for a number of years. He's, we were in the Horses Carriage Club together. He's a friend of Dan Post, who I do the books for. These guys all talk. So it turned out, Walt, when Walt is looking for people, he asks people about people. Yeah, yeah. You don't do. You don't. You don't go through channels. Uh, you don't. You don't use the resumes. You sniff around. And I, apparently I was a, a, a sniffy that um, got recommended, and but nobody said anything. And that's that's how the official launch <clears throat> happened. But you don't see that when it's happening. Yeah. you. I had read somewhere you, you, you were talking about sort of the two different sides of Walt, the sort of uh, the, the more entrepreneurial money raising, the more the bigger than life Walt, but also then this this guy that communicated that that you could get close to him. And I don't remember some of the things that I read. It was a while ago, but the mannerisms <coughs> that he used to have with his hat or things he used to do with his tie to encourage people that that he was this big guy, but he was also approachable. Do you, do you remember any of that? Things that he would do with like his pork pie hat or things like that? Well, for Roy, it was not so much money raising. It was how do I go talk to a bank to get money to do what my kid brother wants to do? Right. There's a big difference. Crazy, this crazy idea that he has. Not, how do I get somebody to fund it? They're not, they're not driven by do this because it will make money. It was like my kid brother, little Walt, wants to do this. God, it's going to cost money. I got to go find it. That's, a, that's, not money, that's not money raising. That's entirely different. That's that's money you're trying to find to do something. I never at any time saw him do anything to do with, let's say, quote unquote, money raising. It was always about uh, this would be really neat if we could do this. He kept using the word stuff all the time. He, you go back to some of his early Disneyland programs. He said, oh, we're going to do space. We're going to do uh, Animal Kingdom. We're going to do this. And then we're really going to do some interesting stuff. <laughs> 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 As if those things were not interesting. He had he had ideas for something else that was more interesting. Yeah. Every day he had ideas that seemed to be so interesting, uh, just because the idea was interesting, and then because uh, he had a lot of observational smarts. In other words, I'd say he was a guy that any any technique, anything in any direction, uh, he'd be curious, and then he'd ask a question, and then somebody would explain it. The explainer never had to say it the second time. Walt could, was such a quick read at anything, particularly mechanical stuff. But it was always uh, the, the neat ideas if you could get something done. So much of his time was spent figuring out how are we going to do this? Uh, what, kind of, what kind of folks can we get to do it? And then once he had a lot of folks and adding them all the time, he had an interesting sixth sense uh, about what a person that already does one thing, what he thought they might be able to do if he asked them to do it. And that was kind of a sixth sense. It was a very, uh, I'd say, a rare trait for a person to be like that. Simple example. Everybody, everybody's heard the story about Exitensio. You know, he's an artist, does all kinds of art. And then Walt says, uh, X, I want you to write the music for the pirate attraction. You know, boom, just off, right off the wall. Well, Walt, I don't, I, I don't write music. Well, if you have any trouble, they write it out on a sheet, a sheet music. If you have any pr- trouble, go down to talk to George Bruns. He'll show you how to do that. And then he walks off. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that, that, that's a really good uh, jumping off point. And I, and I do want to get back to Aaron's question because I, I think it's an interesting question. But um, 
you know, you're you're an industrial designer. You're not a mechanical engineer, as I understand the definition of industrial design. So is, is that just a, a character of Walt where he says, you know, he calls you Bobby. Is that right? Did he call you Bobby? He says, Bobby, like, I know you know how to make something look good, but I want you to make something. Is it, and, and, and then he leaves. Like, is that just the process? That's sort of how you became this architect, physicist, no, it's in a different way. He doesn't ever say anything about recognizing what you have done because it was very well known when uh, he would turn down uh, the invitation to look at somebody's uh, portfolio. He'd simply get a, get a little uh, snippy and say, I'm not interested in what you've done. I'm interested in what you're going to do for me now. Yeah. So he ne- he didn't look at people's qualifications. Hmm. Uh I can recall so many times between he and Roger Brogy was my immediate boss. The, the two of them had come see me and, and, and by my drafting board and says, uh, Bobby, I want you to get started on. And it'd always be some new thing I never heard of. And, you know, spark plug went off. Oh, boy, exciting stuff. Oh, this sounds interesting. I got I to gotta learn a bunch of stuff here. Uh, but the fact that it was always, I want you to get started now on. Yeah. And he did that to everybody constantly even john hench one of our fine artists a just noble gentleman we'd love to talk to getting ready to do the tiki room which is going to be a restaurant and um uh, uh walt says well um john i want you to get started on how we're going to do a restaurant and uh and uh, john says well i don't do restaurants i'm an artist and Walt says, well, it's time you start. And arrangement was made to send him to a restaurant school. <laughs> <laughs> and stop and think of this. This is a scary thought. I didn't know anything about a chassis of an Utopia car when I, Walt hired me. And about five years in, I'd done about 60 jobs. It's a lot of little ones and a lot of some, some very big ones. So by 1950, 59, He's got me designing America's first monorail. Right. Yes. And I had never seen such a machine. I thought they all hung from something. No, this one sat on something. Eight and a half months from the time he walked in with a picture about this is what we want to do. I'm given vice president of the United States a write on it eight and a half months later. Oh, so, so I have a question about that because now you were the first, were you the first monorail pilot? Or were you just the monorail pilot for Richard Nixon? Uh, All the jobs I did was a vehicle. I I got to drive everything first. I was always the test driver. Always, Mm -hmm. always. Fuel liner train, fire engine, whatever it is. I all the monorails after that. I was the first driver. Mm. Um, It just that uh, we were short of time. The monorail hadn't worked until the night before the uh, the big show. And we hadn't had a chance to train any uh, ride operators. We didn't have a chance to train the manager of the monorail crew. So Disneyland decided, well, they'll make the costume department will make me a cast member <laughs> outfit during the night. <laughs> well, in the morning, morning, I have this uh, Gestapo-looking thing with a big hat and everything, and I'm a driver. Yeah. <laughs> and you just happen to be driving the vice president of the United States. I've been driving for two weeks anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so when, when Walt gives you an assignment like that, you know, and, and like you said, Walt's not concerned about what you did. He's concerned about what you're going to do for him. 
And he gives you an assignment that is just so far left of what you're used to or what you've been trained to do or anything like that. There's got to be, there's, there, there must be fear or anxiety that drives the desire to accomplish what he set out. But, but getting back to, to Aaron's question, there's also got to be a personal connection that makes you, uh, that makes you feel comfortable to be able to talk to Walt about accomplishing the very, uh, otherworldly thing that he, he assigns to you. So, so how does he make that personal connection with you? Well, number one, going back to your opening words, I don't recall any fear of doing something that had never been done because um, his batting average from the day the park opened was pretty good. Anything he said we ought to go do, and it usually, usually worked. We, we very seldom uh, went up a, a, a blind, uh, blind canyon for very long uh, doing something that really was not going to work. So the, the chance of success was right around 100% yeah. every time. So there was no reason to doubt what he wanted to do, and therefore there's there's no fear. It was actually the other way around. It was like, oh, I'd love to do this. Oh, I want to learn all the stuff I can learn about it. So rather than the fear, you were attracted to it. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a if you get that, it's a complete reverse. Uh, like in the case of the uh, case of the uh, viewliner train, which was you know two years before. Uh, in 1947, uh, you know, I, I'm a car guy, yeah. and he wants a little streamlined train that'll be temporary for two years. And I knew right away what it ought to look like, and I knew right away I could, I could speed the whole job up by get the uh, the complicated parts by going to a junkyard and buying a '54 Oldsmobile, and that way I got a windshield and a cab and doors. That's the expensive part, and then we put a pretty front on, and I put cars on the back end of it thing and it's a train um the fact that the enthusiasm of wanting to go draw a streamlined train was actually the the big magnet once walt pointed me in that direction now he did this people i talked to and watch how they work they were so excited when walt left the room and now they're all excited telling you what walt's got them got they ask him to do so in other words there was driven more by the enthusiasm of doing something than the fear of uh, that you'd never done it. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about, um, I have always wanted to be a Jungle Cruise skipper. That's one of my, that that is a lifelong goal that I've had. Haven't fulfilled it yet, but I think in 1957 or 58 or something like that, you were you were thinking about redesigning how the hippos worked or having some charging hippos. Can you, can you tell me about the charging hippos that were going to be there? Uh, yes, in those days, animation was, uh, this was long before a computer, long before uh, electronic show control systems for uh, cyclic, uh, cyclic gags, you know, where it either runs all the time or it just stops and starts when a boat goes by, you know, it stops, start. These were done with a drum timer. A drum timer is nothing more than a little Bodine motor with a gearbox with a little a disc on it with a little bumps in it and little tiny micro switches. And this thing would rotate and the switches would tell certain things to turn on and off, you know, usually a hydraulic, usually a water cylinder or a air cylinder, very rudimentary. At the same time, um, in the case of the uh, hippos, uh, one of the chief art directors, uh, Vic Green was very insistent. He wanted the hippos to come out to the boat and then turn around and go back, but the two of them interacting, and uh, that—that's 
that's more than a drum timer. Um, so I came up with a gag where it was kind of a little track and some springs, which meant it's what we call random control. In other words, at 99% it does this time and 1% it does something else, sure. uh, which in certain animals, it was a big advantage. The, the battling yelp that I did, 100% random meant it was like it was servo programmed because it was like, you never knew what those two guys were going to do. They <laughs> did something different, which is a ra- random action. But the hippo random action, um, as the machine wore, we got reports coming in that uh, we've got to stop the hippos from mooning the audience. <laughs> <laughs> the backside of hippos. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the wheel would flip and go the wrong way, and the hippos would come out backwards <laughs> and moon everybody. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, Fantastic. We, we, wanna, we, we want to talk with you about the Matterhorn, but we're hoping to have you on to just talk about the history of the Matterhorn in a separate episode. But I have two quick questions before we move away from the Matterhorn. If, if you could describe the entire process of being assigned the Matterhorn, designing the Matterhorn, building the Matterhorn, seeing it open, and you could do it only in one word, what would that one word be? It worked. <laughs> that works. That, that's, I yeah. think that, that is perfect. Uh, the perfect answer. Yeah. Yes, it worked. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me ask one other quick question about the, the, the Matterhorn. Uh, it, more, more about uh, the story behind the Matterhorn. So, of course, you were in the Imagineering story that... Uh, uh, it was on Disney Plus, and I would say probably not a dry eye in the house uh, when you took guests through the Matterhorn and went up to the top where the the basketball hoop is, and they asked you to sign the wall, uh, the cast member wall. But what was that experience like for you to to sign that? Uh, just take us to that moment, if you will. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions that are made after people saw that sequence in the uh, first the story of the Imagineers back in November. I see it entirely different. Interesting. And the reason for that is, yes, uh, Leslie is a very famous movie producer, but I knew her mother well before she was born. Sure. I've, so I've known Leslie, you know, like from the time she was a little girl. So when she asked me to be down there on that, that particular day to help with what we call pickup shots. We had some other actors that had to be that done there too. Uh, she, it's just uh, Bob and Leslie. We just wandering around, chat, do stuff we do. And uh, she didn't have any script or anything. She would do a little something. She had a great photographer with her. The guy was very flexible in his thinking. And the two of them would chat for like 10 minutes. And then they'd come over and says, okay, Bob, um, we want you to walk from here and go through that door. And when you get to the other side, just wait. Uh, we'll come talk to you again. Um, and then she launched me off in some direction. Uh, no rehearsal. Don't ever rehearse anything. Yeah. Just, okay, just walk across the track, go in the door, do that. So if you remember, there was a couple little sequences. Cross the track, go in a door, go through the shop, pause, look around at this scroungy looking shop go through open another door you know the, the secret door i'm going to go in there ride the elevator go up to the top and we get to the top uh maybe three shots something like that she says okay uh you're out of the elevator he'll be behind you uh this is dangerous uh, watch out there's steel beams where you hit your head when you when you go around a corner and you see a 
chain link fence. Just keep going. And then uh, we'll catch up with you. And I just assume, okay, just, they just do what they do behind me. I never see a camera. That's a funny thing. Yeah. Uh, so I go around a cage and, oh, look, there's a hoop. There, there really is a matter. There's a basketball court up here. Look at that. Was that the first time you knew that? Or you first time you realized I, I, that? I had known it years ago because I was down there whoa, a long time ago. I was a, a contractor designing a device that went up on the top of the building for the uh, slide for life for the the uh, for Tinkerbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, doing the Tinkerbell t- uh, attachment tower. Uh, I had some mechanical equipment I designed where I put it on a thunderstorm night. I'm in the <laughs> ring with all on the top of this building. <laughs> that, that story can end very badly, Bob. Yeah, I, I, I vaguely remember uh, seeing something there, but I'd heard about it. Oh, so there it is. Oh, and there's three balls on the floor. So uh, I've got torn rotator cuffs. I can't do much. Uh, but I reach over and I grab a ball and I, I do an under underhand flip. Yeah. The ball goes down the left side, goes down the right side. And I thought, okay, now I know where it goes. Pick it up. And I was shocked. I've never got a basketball in my life. It <laughs> went up and it just went kerplop. Like that. And I turn around, I'm jumping all over the place and everything. And, oh, Leslie's standing there laughing. And, I, and the guy's standing by with his camera. It never occurred to me they took a picture. Yeah, yeah. Never. Then she says, Bob, go look at the walls. And I walked around, and I'd never seen this before. The walls are covered with autographs. Sure. That whole old wood stuff, I mean, it's. It's a place I don't describe on camera because nobody nobody should ever see see this place. Um, it was eerie. Hmm. That many people, they fell in love with this awful structure <laughs> enough that they wanted a piece of it. And I kind of, that was very interesting. Then we get ready to leave and she walks up behind me and she hands me a, a Sharpie and she says, says, sign it. And it was a... Big door to electrical equipment, all gray and shiny. I said, no, no, wait, we can't do this. This is electrical equipment. We're not allowed to do this. If I do it, everybody else will want to do it. So I didn't want to do it. Then she got real close to me and hands me the pen, and she says, sign it. <laughs> so as you remember, it was a very close shot. That's right. I do remember that. And I remember being on a metal panel, too. Yeah. So I'm up there just trying to hold the arm up there, and I do this. Do the thing, give her back the pen. And then we went out, finished up everything we've got to do for the evening, went over and got a drink at the Napa Rose. I had no hint until I saw the program yeah. that she took a picture after the shots were done of me getting a ball and signing a building. And then you said something about you had an emotional thing there. Yeah. I, I did learn a week after... Um, it came out on uh, November 2nd, either November 12th, whatever it was. That one little scene got the biggest comment around the world. And I thought, you know, that's why Leslie is a success, successful filmmaker. Sure. She sees things other people don't ever see. I was not a party to the thing. I was sort of a reluctant friend doing some stuff with her. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, the magic moment, I never saw it coming and I completely missed it. <laughs> how, how did you feel watching it? 
how, watching that sequence and the story that's being told, I, how did you I, feel taking it in? I was not prepared for that. Yeah. Um, it, it took a couple of seconds as, as you know, the rest of the movie went on and I thought, Oh my God, you know, great works of art usually get autographed by famous artists. Yeah. You know, I just, I just signed an old building. <laughs> so, so, um, I think what we'll do is let, let, let me ask, let me ask the question this way. Let's focus on the people mover for, for a moment. This comes from, we did a whole episode on Ford's magic skyway and the people mover, a history of that, uh, we hope you listen to, and you can correct us uh, about all the facts that we got wrong when you do listen to it. But one of the things that we talked about in that episode was Aaron shared his personal emotional connection with, with the people mover and the experiences that he had. And so I would love to be able to talk about that a little bit, um, about the legacy of the people mover in Tomorrowland and, uh, and your view on what your perspective of the people mover is in Tomorrowland uh, maybe juxtaposed or in addition to uh, Aaron's perspective, having been a kid growing up in Disneyland and riding it with his grandpa. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw it over to Aaron. Yeah. I, uh, people ask, you know, what, what ask us what our favorite rides are in Disneyland. And, and my answer is usually the people mover. And you think of a kid, a, a guy, a kid, you know, my age growing up in the eighties and stuff like that, that I would pick space mountain or, or Matterhorn. Matterhorn is, is one of my favorite rides, but uh, there was something there was something just special about the people move there the speed the height how it, it it went into other attractions it was a way it was it was almost like experiencing disneyland on your couch with your family while you were in there uh, in a cool breeze and and so for that reason it was just, it was just such a special attraction i've never seen even remotely repeated anywhere else in any other context and uh so thank you for that but uh, that's my experience with it what was your experience with it oh uh, you have to go way back many years before, there were um, like ride conveyances, um, smaller than a train, smaller than a monorail, uh, that usually were built for exhibitions. Uh, some of them had been built for um, like what would become shopping centers. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes back quite a few years, in which these were usually just referred to as um, Elevated guideway was would be the, the technical term. The um, they were always small and always slow. Uh, I'd seen some uh, photographs of some different parts of the world. Um, there was always an interest in it from the standpoint that the idea was if you had an area of something of interest, why not? take people around so they can kind of get the lay of the land and see what's there. Yeah. This goes all the way back to Atlantic city in the thirties where you had what was called in those days, an elephant train, Mm. the elephant train. uh, I remember the photographs. It was uh, the first car was the 31 Chevrolet and uh, people usually sat sideways and it, uh, you, you just meandered. You just, I look at this and I look at that stuff. People like the people watch and you just kind of wander around. There was things like that all over the world um, that were, it would be motorized. Um, so this is something everybody was quite familiar with. So I'm just assuming <clears throat> Walt knew of all this stuff over all of the, all of the uh, years. Mm. Then when um, 
we get to where the idea with Disneyland, we're going to have a railroad. <clears throat> the railroad, obviously, uh, it's a sightseeing tour. You get yeah. to see what Disneyland is, but it only, you only look one way. And then, of course, uh, we do a viewliner train, similar to a train, but, uh, you know, it winds around and doesn't go very far, but it, you can see stuff from it. Yeah. Okay. Then here comes the, uh, the World's Fair. And a big effort put into uh, not only the Magic Skyway that uh, Ford and Walt wanted to do. We have the General Motors exhibit. We had the telephone exhibit. Where they're elevated. The idea then was a very well-known thing that says, oh, boy, it's sure nice to be up. I can get a kind of an overlook at stuff. And generally the idea that, say, that was interesting. When we get off, let's go find where that is. and Let's go do that. So that was the general kind of an idea. So now it becomes an official project uh, opening at Disneyland. Yeah. In which um, it was it was a very well-known thing historically. So this is not like an earth-shaking, never, never seen before thing. It was a case now that it will be specifically in Disneyland. It will be for the uh, primary purpose of giving a preview of everything in Tomorrowland. I think that's what's, uh, yes. I, I was going to say, I think that's what's so interesting about that attraction is because it is, uh, it gives you that preview. And Aaron and I have talked about it before. One of the most unique things about it is you're sitting on an attraction, looking through another attraction, being able to view other attractions. And just the, the mult, it almost harkens back to the multi-plane camera work of animation that Walt pioneered, that you could have these multiple depths of uh, of Tomorrowland from one vantage point. Yeah, it's the um, the 1940 Pinocchio ride. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, but it's it's the idea. It's it's the overview sampler mm. of a of something that's interesting in in, in the main area. Uh, when Walt was gone to Europe in '64. Um, um, he'd seen a a device that had a rotating ring for getting on and yeah. off. And while he was gone, I had already made a drawing of such a thing, but bigger, uh, with the idea that I figured you want to have a high capacity. So use a train of vehicles, but not too long. So that way they can kind of change speed on a station. Okay, the next big thing we got to do, you're going to step in a vehicle and there's a speed differential of which you don't ever exceed with stepping sideways into a vehicle. Sure. Mm. Like the walkway is moving a little bit. And I thought, boy, the rest of the speed up I could get, if I got on in the center of the ring, it moves much slower in the center than it does on the outside edge. Why don't we just come up through the donut hole and walk out to the edge because as we walk out there, we're going faster. Sure. Then there's a slight slip between the track and the car. And then the fact that cars are, are not an endless train, I've done everything possible to have a very high capacity. And that, that was the general idea. Walt comes back from Europe, and I can't wait to show him my loading thing. And he says, well, Bob, I just saw it, but I think it's got some bad features. Um here, uh, I'll get you a, uh, I'll loan you the Cine 16 camera and I'll give you about 400 feet of black and white film. I want you to fly tomorrow to uh, 
Lausanne, Switzerland, and, and go look at it and take some movies of, of it for me. Because that's what yeah. you would do. It's just fly to Switzerland. To Switzerland. <laughs> I had already had my weekend figured out with the family. We were all going to go someplace. Not anymore. <laughs> now you're going to Switzerland. <laughs> you're dusting uh, off your lederhosen. Well, we had a CD, a CD 16 as a camera that's kind of a, like a rectangular block, real pretty thing. Uh, but it had been uh, uh, caught in a fire. So they took it out of the property inventory. So it, it's called the Phantom because it doesn't exist. Oh, right. <laughs> so this is called the CD16 Phantom, which anybody can use because it's not technically company property. <laughs> yeah. So here I am on a front seat of a 740-707 landing in, yeah, landing in, in uh, Geneva, Switzerland to uh, go to the Lausanne National Exposition and, uh, and do this assignment. So came back and um, showed him the stuff that uh, we shouldn't do because a little bit on the dangerous side. We had that all covered. So bang, we decided that right away. And then he wanted to have this meeting about what are we going to do to make it look quite important looking. Yeah. And I remember he doodled around and doodled around. He says, suddenly he made us drawing. And he says, say, let's take the old... Uh, the old rocket jet. We could take that rocket jet, pick it up, and we could make it look really modern. And then we could stick it up on the top of this building where your track is going to go around, and that'll give us room to put your escalator up it. Just like that, Walt comes up with a configuration that was just star-drawn, just yeah, yeah. bang like that. <laughs> so away we went. Everybody had their marching orders. Uh, everybody took off in all the different directions. Bill Watkins did the um, calculations for the motor, the track, and all that stuff. And, of course, I immediately uh, jumped in and did the car. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just go back real quick? You mentioned something interesting to me. If you're not comfortable answering it, that's totally fine. But I, I wonder what it was like for, for your family with you working at Disney. Did did they know what you were working on? Were they allowed to know? What was it like when you say, like, I got, I got some bad news. We're not going to the beach this weekend. I'm, I'm going to Switzerland. Uh, what was that like for them? Did they know what they're, what, what you were doing? I shared everything we're doing. I mean, this is exciting. Whatever <laughs> we're doing is exciting. Yeah, how can you not tell them, right? I'm, I'm not working at the Skunk Works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a disappointment, but uh, pretty much understood that, uh, you know, if Walt's got you doing something, well, you just, you just go do it. Yeah. But the good part was, since I had to go over to Geneva, uh, the company arranged that the, uh, my flight back would come to New York, not L.A. Guess what? I get off the plane, and uh, now I'm going to go to the New York World's Fair. And guess what? When I got to my hotel, my wife and kids were there. Oh, oh that's awesome. Come on. That's fantastic. That's so great. That's great. So what that meant was we came home by the company plane. We got to ride... Uh, Come back, uh, you know, and, and we there's our little airplane, the little go, the gold Gulf Stream right yeah. there. That's great. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's the mouse with a mouse tail on it. Yep. So uh, it was all good. So there's no so, reason, uh, you know, Walt, Walt cared about your family. Yeah, yeah. He, he really did. Uh, when go, going back to the people mover for a moment, that's of course it becomes it's a staple of Tomorrowland, and and, and everybody. Everybody thinks of when they think of Tomorrowland, they think of Space Mountain, and they think of the paper, the People Mover, probably more than any other two attractions. And the submarines, three, three attractions: submarines, People Mover, Space Mountain. You've developed two of them, and then ninety nine comes, and the People Mover goes away in place of the rocket rods. 
um, which did not stick around for very long. And, and I'm wondering how you felt about that. And, uh, and then I have a question specifically about a, a rumor about the rocket rods that I'm wondering whether you can confirm. So, but first of all, how did you feel about the people mover going away and the rocket rods coming in? Well, it's a complex thing you have to understand. As large corporations move through their history, there's always the zeal to um, keep improving your, your product, so to speak. But it's very dangerous when your your mind product is happy people. Mm, yeah, you got to visualize this: that whatever Imagineering or the company itself figures out they'd like to do, and the minute they talk about it. You have upset half the people, and you've excited the other half. Sure. This is a given. This is the way it is. We have people now that are so dedicated to their Disneyland. How dare you monkey with my Disneyland? And there's other people that say, oh, my God, at long last, they're finally going to build something new. Both of those viewpoints are completely correct. Yes, but it leaves you in the quandary of what do you do and how well do you do it? I use this as a, a business lesson uh, on some of my lectures that I do about how it's possible for large, successful corporations to reach a level of expertise and a, an almost hubris-like self-belief that what they do is always guaranteed 100% perfect. Uh, we know from the Greeks who invented the word, Greek tragedies were written from life experience. That's right. Um, in a modern day, they can be forgotten. For, forgotten. Two attractions are like that. The, uh, the saga of the uh, rocket rods and the saga of uh, Luigi's tires. Mm -hmm. uh, you have intelligent, trained people well-managed, well-funded, budgeted, scheduled. Everybody works their heart out. And when you get it done, you got a nothing. And sometimes the nothing is so bad that the good part is they took it out as fast as they could get around to take it out. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's why architects plant ivy on buildings. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just part of life. It just is. So the, the rumor, of course, is that, you know, the, the, the people mover track was not built to sustain the G-forces of the rocket rods. And, which is, and, and that, amongst many technical problems, is one of the reasons why the, that attraction went down. And then there's this rumor that, that nothing can go on the people mover yeah. track because it's, uh, there's so many stress fractures in it that it can't be repaired unless the buildings that house the track are also taken down. Do you, is, is any of that true, or is that just wild Disney fan rumor? I was at a uh, high-priced private dinner on the studio lot several years ago in which um, it was a long table of people, and I was to be the main speaker, and at the last second, the second speaker uh, was placed beside me, who was the person responsible for all Imagineering design, who I'd never met. Hmm. It was extremely awkward. 
Um, <laughs> that may be an understatement, but keep going. <laughs> um, I got the question, which I get every time, Bob, whatever happened to the people mover? When is it coming back? Yeah. Yeah. And I try to explain what little facts I do know. And then I just thought, Ooh, look who I've got sat next to me. And I'm <laughs> right, yeah. in. I direct the question to you, sir. <laughs> That's called passing the buck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was, um, he was a good joke within all of the, um, reasonable, uh, uh, restraints of specifics. There's a massive list of impediments to doing any changes to structures that were done under previous rules. Right. There's right. also large constraints to do changes, new operations uh, that would violate uh, safety, fire, and uh, uh, exit regulations. Yeah, so there's just so much retrofitting that would need to be there done. Is, yeah. Um, it's a reminder that how much Walt got away with in the early days where we didn't have to have walkways on a people mover. We didn't have to have safety guardrails on a, on a, on a, a little Alice ride. It comes down that track and right. last, you know, only recently I'd put handrails on it, but as time, you know, and at one time we had four people riding in comfortable Matter on cars. Now we have less people riding in very uncomfortable cars because you law says you can only put three people in it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, as the regulations for new design comes along, in one way it's kind of sad. It's not so much fun, but it is the way the world goes yeah. in uh, different attitudes toward uh, safety. And I, I certainly can't uh, knock that because the reason we all travel the world and airplanes don't fall down in this country is because. Uh, it's done exactly right to do with regulatory design. Um, uh, Bob, uh, there, there's so many other things that we want to talk with you about. Uh, j just as a, as a quick aside, and we don't have to spend any time on it, you know, when you, when you went out on your own in 1981, you did a series of projects that affected me personally. And that was working with the Jacksons on the Victory Tour it was creating King Kong for Universal Studios. And, and one of the things that I'm just so uh, thrilled to be able to talk with you about is I was at the 1984 closing ceremonies. Uh, my dad flew me out from Detroit because we we're from Detroit, flew me out to Detroit for the 84 Olympics. And the uh, I got to do, go to two things. One was baseball and the last one was the closing ceremonies. And I remember seeing that UFO come down and I was nine years old at the time. And I was 100% positive that that was an actual flying saucer and it blew my mind. And you were the man that was responsible for that. So I just, again, have to just say thank you so much because during that, that visit that I had, we went to Disneyland, went to Universal Studios and went to the closing ceremonies. So I feel like I got, I will call it the Bob Gurr 360. I got the, the, the full Bob Gurr experience and, and just absolutely, absolutely amazed by the uh, the attractions that I got to experience on that um, during that that visit, and then the coup d'état was just seeing that UFO, and and I just want to thank you for for having your hand in all of those things. Well, that's good because you can still see it on video on the internet. That's it's right. So yeah, 
there's read the comments. Some people I still believe that's the Martians. <laughs> I believe that could have been done, but I laugh because I think it was so easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, for uh, like I said, a, a, a nine-year-old boy that just ignites your imagination. You know, I'm a, I'm a Star Wars kid, and then to see something like that after having gone to Disneyland and Universal Studios, uh, you know, I just can't I can't express how much my imagination was just ignited by those those events. You want you want the background how that happened? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to tell us, we'll we'll listen. Who was the original uh, entertainment director for the Olympics? I know this. I, yeah. I know this, but I can't remember it. Who can can you remind us? Was it? I, I I don't remember. Tommy Walker. What he proposed to the Olympics committee. Remember that was run by uh, Uberoff, Mister Uberoff, very sharp guy. They're used to getting a budget up front. Tommy basically told them. We're Disney. We don't budget up front <laughs> because we can't. Because <laughs> we're, we're concerned about the experience, not the revenue. That's yeah. why. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. So here comes um, Uberoth goes and gets uh, David Walper, really successful movie producer, plans big event. David Walper, a deadly serious guy, really, really good. He then takes a suggestion from Walker, we'll use a flying saucer. Okay, well, he's a flying saucer. Then one day, it's handed to me. And the next day, the company I was working with went bankrupt. And I managed to talk to them all and say, don't don't run away, don't run away. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. So I came up with a design really, really, really fast. And then uh, Roger Brogy's son, uh, Roger Jr., he and uh, uh, Jim Adelaide ran a company down the street and I says, you guys uh, don't have anything in your shop. How would you like to build a flying saucer starting tomorrow? <laughs> sure. Good. So uh, the deal went just like that. The Jackson wow. job, we had a lot of time. We had nine weeks to do the whole job. Yeah. Quarter million dollar job, nine weeks. Uh, we only had five weeks to do the flying saucer. Well, it had an amazing impression uh, on, on but, millions you know, of people. Remember, there's a lot of people that uh, came up through Walt and – you have no fear of doing the unknown yeah. stuff. You have no fear that you can't do it. And you get cracking and don't make any excuse. Just dive in and go. Yeah. So the, the lessons of Walt were beautifully applied in the flying saucer job. Uh, uh, Bob, I, I think I have, I have two more questions uh, b- before we finish up. My first one, it's, it's a, a compound question. And that would be taking a look back on everything that you have touched, not necessarily designed, but everything that you've been a part of, do you have a favorite? Uh, do you have one that you're most proud of? And is that the same thing? I got 250 grandchildren because I did 250 jobs, 100 for Walt, 200, uh, 150 for everybody else. It's like grandchildren. You want me to pick one? <laughs> yes. I want you to pick one. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but seriously, it's the Disneyland fire engine. Really? Yes. And I'll tell you the reason why. Early 58, Walt comes in my office like he usually would do. And uh, one day I said, Walt, you know, we don't have a fire engine on Main Street. No, Bobby, we don't. A few minutes later, the accounting department phones up and says, here's the uh, new project number for the fire engine. Walt was just here. <laughs> and I thought, my God, Walt's got to go to the accounting department, get a number for something he wants. <laughs> yeah, Okay. 
So uh, it's the same chassis as the uh, red car, yellow car, uh, just different wheels in the back, uh, completely different body and everything. Same same machine. I put my heart into that little machine. We built it at the uh, studio. Everybody was thrilled to death on it. I got all the parts from a fire coach company. I paid 150 bucks for a 38 Chevy with all the parts on it. So when you go to Disneyland today and you see all those brass parts, I got all of that junk and, and uh, pike poles and ladders, a whole darn thing for 150 bucks. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. That's great. So, um, uh, I got permission to drive it to Disneyland. I went to the DMV and I got a moving permit for one day, uh, 8th of uh, July of 1958. And I drove it down to Santa Ana Freeway. Mm. Traffic, luckily, was really clogged that day, and I was in the right lane. I got all the way to Norwalk, and it sped up, so I had to get off. If you ever drive to Disneyland, it goes at an angle, and then you got to go east, south, east, south. you got to zigzag to get there. Came up this run around the little corner, and as I went around the corner, a little kid standing on the corner, he says, Mister, by the time you get there, it will have burned down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how little that car was until years ago. There was a parade in Long Beach and uh, vehicles coming. And I said, oh, look, there's a little itty-bitty fire engine. And it got within a block. And I said, oh, my God, that's mine. <laughs> and I could see now, that's why this little kid <laughs> said what he said. Uh, so it got to be my favorite. Um, Steve, the guy that drives it breaks rules from time to time he'll stop in mid-block to pick me up and hoping there's no aerial lead that catches him at it because he's been driving 42 years i feel like he's got an excuse i feel like he's he's probably so, got a pass for that yeah so last year in december they said come on down before the park opens bob we're going to have 23 drivers coming in on their day off we're going to give up give the fire engine a birthday they gave it a birthday. Uh -huh. So for a great number of reasons, that's my favorite. That is Because phenomenal. when you drive somebody else's fire engine, you'll never have one by yourself. But I got one because I spoke up, convinced Walt he needed it. Then I find out when Walt's in the park, he drives the fire engine because yeah. he wanted one too. Yeah. All right, the final piece of history. What was Walt's last photograph at Disneyland on his park? Before he passed away. You know this one? I don't, I don't. I'm thinking. Is it is it one of the iconic photos or is it one of the lesser known photos? He and Mickey are sitting in the fire engine. Oh, oh that's sweet. Yeah. When when was that taken, Bob? Hmm. A few months before he passed away. Yeah. Hmm. And it was the last in those days you had slides on the speed graphic camera. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Rennie was taking all the photos. Uh, Walt was not feeling well. And just as they got ready to finish, he said, Rennie says, oh, I got one more. Walt got back up in there with the mouse. And just like that, just unplanned, just bang. And Walt had that look. That's his park. That's his fire engine. Yeah. I, I want to I ask, what does that look? What does that look mean to you? Well, it's, uh, it's here. Yeah. Well, Bob, we thank you so much with, uh, with, with sharing those stories with us. Um, I think this is a, a, a perfect time to just, again, express our gratitude with the amount of time that you shared with us, 
the stories that you shared with us, you, your work, it, it carries with Aaron and I, it carries with our children, it carries with our spouses, um, and it carries with, with millions of people around the world. And, um, you know, on behalf of all of them, thank you for everything that you have done to inspire us. And like I said, hope, hope for what, what could be, not, not what was. So I'm just so thankful for that. Well, thank you. It's, it's always my pleasure because don't forget, I got to drive and ride everything first. That's right. That's right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I, will you join us again soon, Bob? That's my, my last question. Will you join us again soon? Sure. If you have intelligent questions that contribute to the history of Walt, I certainly I'll help you anytime. I hope we've done that so far. Well, I, I can always, I, I like your style because the first thing I see is uh, uh, echo dampers on the wall behind you. Yeah. And you have the correct overhead with the floaters, mics. That's right. Hey, yeah. Good stuff. Almost as good as an old NBC 430 from 1930. <laughs> All right. Almost as good. Okay. We will take almost as good today. Yeah, we'll take that. We'll take we'll that. We'll take that from Bob Gurr. <laughs> Bob Gurr gave me an almost as good. So Aaron, hey, we just got done talking with Bob Gurr. Yeah, we did. We got done. We got done learning from Bob Gurr, talking to Bob Gurr, experiencing with Bob Gurr. Man, I was so. I was watching him speak sometimes when he was talking. This time when we when we interviewed uh, Rolly, yeah, uh, we weren't connected by video, but right with with, uh, with Bob we were. So uh, there's a number of distracting things behind him, pictures like the, of monorail, like his monorail that's behind <laughs> yeah, him. Yes, monorail. There's a number of distracting things, but once you kind of blur that out and focusing on him, uh, I was really I was watching his eyes move while he was telling stories, yeah. and I was thinking that. Um, because of that, I was thinking he, he was he was talking about a UFO that he designed, so right. the, all this stuff. I was thinking like that memory, the pictures of that memory, what that really looked like, they're right there in his head. Yeah. And we're kind of next to him in this video thing, but that that movie of that day that really did happen in 1984, like it's just right there in his and head. And it's just replaying. And it's his, just replaying. He's mind. getting to live right now. He's getting to watch a movie I would really like to see, yeah. but he's watching it right now as he's telling the story. And there was so many uh, instances of that happening uh, with him. Um, so yeah, it's just an amazing experience. His his mind is so acutely tuned. Yeah. Right. I mean, like you can tell that this man is brilliant. Yeah. He's brilliant in his approach to design and mechanics, and he was he has experiences that anybody would want to take just a small portion of and say like, I wish I had that experience. Yeah. But then you take a look at his life and his legacy of design, and it's just. We described it at the beginning as staggering. I, I feel like there's no other way to describe it. Just hit after hit after hit. And when you take a look at all of those different attractions, the monorail, people mover, submarines, sky buckets, uh, the, the skyway, the Matterhorn, they are all very, very distinct. But if you were to say one man designed all of that, you go, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Like his, th the essence of who he is as a thinker and as a designer is just imprinted on all those attractions. Yeah. I'd love, I I'm glad that, uh, that our listeners got to hear one of the one of the answers that he gave to a question. I'm pretty sure we asked a question. We might not. He just might have just answered a question, but it was such a wonderful answer. And he was talking a little bit about the ownership of Disneyland, of, of Disney magic, 
uh, of Disney nostalgia that who really owns that? What's the right viewpoint of that? And that's something that I've struggled with as my park changes, uh, as Tomorrowland becomes something, as Galaxy's Edges and my park changes. The, yeah. This question is, is it changing the right way? And I've always thought like, you know, like that's kind of up to us fans. It's kind of like that's all we have is us fans to sort of speak up for what Walt wanted. But then when you listen to um, uh, there was a lot of stuff that did not that that we couldn't include on the episode. There was just conversations we had with yeah. Bob. When you listen to the the the, um, the admiration that he had for Walt and that how important it is that people get the details of that story, what that work was like, when you mix up the order of things, you know, when it comes to finances or how a process does and doesn't work, he corrects you right away. Right. So there's just like, I have this huge thankfulness uh, and a little bit of relief of like the people that are still around Bob, that, I mean, if you get to hear him talk, like that is a lesson in Disney culture and how different it was than any other culture and why it's so important. And it is, it's still very important to him. Yeah. He doesn't let answers slide. When you're like, you know how it was all about this? He'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It wasn't. <laughs> no, that's about not that. That. Yes. <laughs> I just love You're that. incorrect. Yeah, Let I me love that you. it was like that because it's so important that that legacy and that admiration and that way of doing things is preserved. And he's still doing that work right now. He's he still could, doing. He it. could just be like, "It's not important. They're they're fine. They make a bunch of money. They don't need." But he's still doing that work of protecting that way of thinking, working, and creating magic. It's amazing to me. He's turning eighty nine in that October. Be, that can't be true. And it's like <laughs> he's this, sharper than a lot of forty year olds. There is, that I know. <laughs> there is no slowing this man down. Yeah. I mean, they're just it's. it's He's so, again, he's just so acutely tuned. Yeah. Uh, and and his memory is incredible when it comes to those, yeah. you know, the, the stories that he told us. And and there's probably more on the cutting room floor than than there is in this episode, but it's just because he just, he took us on these paths of these stories that just brought us into his history, his personal history, yeah. not even necessarily the Disney company and dealing with Walt, just his thought process yeah. at that time on all these different yeah, projects. Yeah, we want to do, like, this is new. I'm new. I'm new at interviewing Disney legends. It's a new thing for oh, me. Oh, we're seasoned veterans at this point. I mean, at this point. But we got the, two under our belt. The, there is a level that part of that, uh, you want to honor their story. You want to honor who they are. You want to honor what's important to them. But the, there is there is a part of it where, where some of those conversations were for that moment in that room at that yeah. time. They don't make sense in a podcast uh, format. A, a lot of them a lot of them do, and, and I'm so thankful for that. But a lot of them are, like, just, like, Little Aaron feels like, like man, I'm just happy to be a fly on the wall in this room because this guy's dropping knowledge about things I've been curious about forever. Yeah, it's like we went to school and Bob Gurr was our teacher today. <laughs> yeah, That's totally exactly. what it feels like. Uh, but, I, but I will note, I even wrote this down and we did not ask him. How hot was it on opening day? Yeah, well, he would have given, you know, and, and if you're going to ask anybody, he would have given you the exact, the exact, exact temperature. Yeah. He would have told us what the barometric pressure was at, yeah. that, at that moment. He was in time. thinking about something, and so he sampled it for, he sampled it in eight different locations right. in Disneyland. He totally would have. I thought about asking it, and I decided not to I had I, it, I, because <laughs> I thought he would do, prove me wrong. I had it cued, and I was like, Aaron wants to know, it wasn't really that hot. And he was going to be like, well, Aaron is incorrect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'd already, I'd already messed up a few times. I didn't want to fail the <laughs> Bob Gurr interview. What a what a an, uh, it's amazing to have the opportunity to speak to somebody so connected uh, to that time of creation of Southern California. The things he's is a party to from the airport to Disneyland yeah. uh, to some of the Universal stuff. I remember going on that King Kong thing and being like, "It's not going to be that scary, guys." And everybody just sell down. It's not. It's not like King Kong's in there. And then and you go into that sure room. Is. <laughs> it's like right there. He picks up your tram and yeah. shakes you. Yes. Yeah, a Bob a Bob Gurr effect, man. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. The th one of the things we didn't talk about that all that I'll just say at the end. One of my favorites, sort of. It's not a quote about Bob Gurr, but it's a it's an idea quote about God, Bob Gurr, and that's when he was working with Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael Jackson apparently was telling him what he wanted to have done on the stage, yeah. and, and the sentiment was that I don't want something that's rentable. 
And I just love that that, that that sort of describes it. If you don't want something that you can buy off the shelf, if you don't want something rentable, go see Bob Gurr. Yeah. He'll give you some, he'll give you something that's Gurr. And it has. Yeah. I mean, and he has time and time again. Time and time again. It's insane. It's insane to, to have spent this time with him to hear about the things that he, he did. Just so... Very I saw things thing. today, Scott. I saw things, saw today things. on video, and, and you can't unsee and I, it. Now. I can't unsee it. Good things, like you know that you know that day uh, in Disneyland. I don't know if other people have this, where you go into the Disney Gallery and they, they have some kind of like cool, you know, reimagination of something. Like, oh, they have the Jungle Cruise sign now that you can get. It's like yeah. smaller and it's it's just flat, but yeah. they have the Jungle Cruise sign, and you're like, well, this is a cool part of the day just to see all the little fan merch here for like the real fan. I saw things today, Scott. It's <laughs> like real Dude, fan merch. I have to get that. Yeah. I have to figure out how it's how one I of one. It. I saw yes. things that were one of one, though, you know, absolutely. There are things you go. There is one person that owns that. And it's right there. And it's right there. And we yeah. can see it. Listen, if you are interested in finding more about Bob Gurr, you can go to his website, bobgurr.com. A fantastic website it has information about a documentary that's coming out, it has information about his books, signing appearances, his bus tour. Did, I, I, get, did I, was, I get it right? It was. It okay. was correct. I was like, is it official Bob Gurr? No, it's bobgurr.com. Yeah. And also Fandom Productions yeah. is where you can go to pick up a model recreation of the 1971 Matterhorn bobsled redesign. Yeah. Uh, limited edition signed by Bob himself, fandomproductions.com. That's also where you can find information about Bob's bus tour that he gives in Southern California. Obviously, it's it's not happening right now because of COVID, but there is a regular bus tour that Bob gives where he takes you through Disney landmarks and Bob Gurr landmarks. Just amazing. So fandomproductions.com to find out all the stuff there is to get, learn, or see about Bob Gurr. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. This has been Bobsleds and Banthas. We love making this show. We hope you enjoy it. We release every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeart. We're going over on Amazon pretty soon. Audible. Audible. There you go. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're going to be there. And if we're not there, let us know so we can be there. Please be sure to subscribe, and we would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps other people find it's out. It's a five-star about- review, guys. I get legitimately nervous about these interviews. I get, I get nervous. So like, we need is this to- a five-star? I feel a- like it is a five-star. I, I mean, I get nervous about interviewing Disney legends. I need the five-star to keep, keep for me For validation? For validation. Yeah, okay, so give us a five-star for validation, that we're doing something that is something you want uh, us to do, it's right? Our, yeah, it's our childhood heroes casting some sort of judgment on our microphone equipment. You would think that the mere fact of being able to speak to in- individuals like this we don't need a five-star review. You would it. think. You would think that, right? You would, think you would that, be wrong. But you would be wrong. What we really could use is to talk to our childhood heroes and get a five-star well, review on that. iTunes. Am I allowed to say that our Aisha four-star review became a five-star review? Hey, Aisha, thanks so Thank much for you. changing your four-star to a five-star. It really helps us out. Yeah. It really, really helps us out. It does, and it was like a, it was like Christmas came early on my driveway when was, I was like, look at that. It was like she gave you a Christmas gift that do we was know that okay. This is, do we know that this is a she? We do know she's okay. a We do know it's a Thank she. you very much, Aisha four five. We do know it's a she. That's not a very clinical, didn't yeah, it? You just went back down to four. <laughs> we did all that work, and now you're back down. We're very happy that Shaw went from four to five. We thank you so much for doing that. And uh, yeah, it just makes us happy. Makes us happy. Hey, you can visit us at bobsudsandbanthas.com. You can email us, info at bobsudsandbanthas.com if you want to do a collaboration with us. We would absolutely love that. You can follow us on Instagram at bobsudsandbanthas where we do lots of fun stuff. You should join us there if you haven't already. Uh, Thanks so much for listening this week. We have more of these bangers of a show ready to go. We can't be more excited 
than to share what we've got in the hopper with you. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Until that time, uh, he's been Aaron. I've been Scott. We've been bobsleds. And I'll see you soon. Oh, good. I thought we were going to say I like spaghetti. No, you don't have to. Not on a special episode. Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom Disneyland is growing every day. This Saturday night. Now there are more new rides for more fun. Synthomagnetic musical sound. Through the magic of light and sound, yes, there's more fun at Disneyland in Anaheim. Open every day, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done.